the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program well, this is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you are in for an Uber treat today because I'm in for an Uber treat, and that is we're going to get to visit with Brandon Daniels. Uh, Brandon, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Yes, thank you, Tom. It's it's good to get a chance to touch base again. So, Brandon, could you uh, give our audience just a flavor of your professional background? Sure, yeah. I mean, my overarching a thread throughout my background is crisis management. So I've been managing large-scale litigation, investigation, compliance crisis matters for almost 20 years. Um, I um, have done everything from managing aspects of the LIBOR investigations, namely some of the uh, management issues and market manipulation issues in LIBOR, uh, to the FX matters, to the um, issues where um, uh, some companies were uh, essentially uh, alleged to have bribed officials in China with uh, appointments of um, uh, appointments of uh, uh, relatives uh, into primary positions of influence. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that's my background. Um, I also have one slight nuance to my background. Uh, I was first a technologist by hobby. Uh, if you go back about 15 years ago, um, I then became a practitioner uh, through study, um, failing a lot when I first started trying to use technology in my big investigations or compliance remediation functions, and then eventually becoming um, one of the folks that's really driving technology into major compliance programs today. Yesterday, I was talking to a health and safety professional, and uh, I brought up the Exxon Valdez, and he said uh, they his department studies that once a year from a crisis management perspective. So perhaps one day we can visit on crisis management because I find the lessons um, in every or the major crisis management situations literally going back 50 years are still relevant today. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. So so I had the opportunity to work on the Joint Acquisition Task Force. Uh, it was the COVID-19 response effort, the inter interagency COVID-19 response effort. And lessons that I feel like I learned even 10 years ago in how to manage crisis, namely uh, treating things with urgency, um, but at the same time having pillars of uh, confidence and pillars of clear and transparent decision making um, really came into play, uh, and so it's it's a it's a continually continually evolving field because the span and scope of crises feels like it 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 has almost exponential growth from what it might have been 20 years ago, but at the same time, the same fundamental principles of managing them effectively sustain and uh, maintain through the test of time. Brendan, uh, as much as I would love to visit with you on that topic <laughs> for this podcast, we're actually here to talk about uh, third parties in the compliance context. And I first want to start with, as we record this in 2021, 
third parties are still seen as the highest risk in FCPA compliance. Uh, after 15 plus years in the modern era of, of FCPA enforcement, do you have any idea why uh, they continue to be uh, such a difficult issue for compliance professionals? Um, I think there are three reasons why third parties, um, whether it's um, in the context of a joint venture uh, or um, coordinated uh, activities in commerce represent such a substantial challenge um, in day-to-day FCPA compliance or, or just broader comprehensive compliance needs. And that's because you have um, an organization that is um, not potentially aligned to the same practices the same policies, the same procedures that you are supporting your efforts in potentially uh, a, heavy, a much more heavily regulated setting, whether that's jurisdictional uh, or it's just the framework of the industry that you work in. Um, you know, you have defense systems entities uh, or electric grid companies that rely on startup software providers, right? And those two. Um, segments of the market are incredibly different in terms of what regulations, um, what standard practices, what regulatory scrutiny they're subject to. And so uh, the first thing is you've got an a asynchronous view of compliance across uh, you know, primary companies and then their third parties, whether again in, in a joint venture um, or potentially an acquisition or in just coordinated commerce. The, the second thing uh, that occurs is that when you invite a third party into a critical part of your infrastructure, right? Not, not delivering um, you know, cleaning products to one of your facilities, even though that's become more critical through COVID. Um, when, when you invite someone into how you actually manufacture your product, whether it's an OEM or whatever it might be, um, you are actually inviting them into your operational uh, environment. And I think that is a change in thinking uh, across corporate America. Um, the uh, traditional sort of compliance practices really manage those areas where you have direct control and influence. So it's your own people, it's your own processes, it's your own infrastructure. What I think people are awakening to is that third parties, your vendors, are essentially part of your ecosystem as well. And so you need to apply those same compliance practices that you do in your people process and technology to those third parties. And that means compliance standards, uh, but it also means you know insider threat programs, right? Vendors are now a part of your ecosystem, just like your people. And so take the same tact that you would to your people and start an insider vendor threat management program, right? Uh, it also is redundancy on critical and essential needs. I never have a single person that's the only person that knows how to do that one thing, right? Single points of failure in an operational context are. Um, they're untenable, but we do that all the time with our vendors, right? 
And so redundancy in our downstream supply chains is critical. And then, um, you know, the third aspect of this in terms of uh, management is transparency. You know, you wouldn't have it so that, um, you know, one of your employees uh, that is, you know, potentially doing research or gathering information for you, that you don't, you don't have transparency to where they're gathering it from or where they sourced it from. But you do that with your vendors all the time, right? And so, again, it's thinking about your, your, your third parties, your joint ventures, uh, your acquisitions as a part of your ecosystem, and then thinking about their third parties as a part of your ecosystem as well. That is a major shift that has to happen in order to stem the tide of continued enforcement actions in the area of third parties. If you are in a heavy, heavily regulated space, guess what? So are your vendors because they are a part of your infrastructure, just like your people, just like your process, just like your technology. Brendan, although I break down the life cycle uh, third-party risk management into five steps, there's really two pre-contract signing and after contract signing. And I was wondering, uh, first of all, uh, I've observed you and Exeter really be at the forefront of technical, technological tech solutions to uh, both sides of that equation. I was wondering if you could talk about the evolution you've seen in technology in the management of third-party risk. Well, so, so, the most important change in third-party risk management is the fact that we're doing third-party risk management, right? Um, the uh, consistent application of compliance policies and standards to outside vendors to the degree that you really understand the risks uh, that uh, are implicit in that relationship is a major step change for the entire industry. Um, but then the second thing is, how do, how do we do that kind of assessment of vendors? How do we do that due diligence? And because many corporates are starting this program from scratch, they don't have to start from a position where everything is manually gathered, everything has been subject to some existing process or procedure. They can take advantage of some of the technological advance, advancements we have in due diligence and assessments. Namely, the ability to utilize open source data for the assessment of risk, right? And now open source data is becoming so pervasive, so comprehensive, right? And you can gather so many data sources to give you sort of a, at least an indicator of a company's uh, financial wherewithal or uh, you know, a company's standard business activities or practices that you can actually use the technology as your open source due diligence capability. So you don't need you know, people to go rooting around the internet. There have now been um, you know, technological advancements that allow you to mass use Google or to mass use Bing or to um, rely on you know third parties that are becoming more comprehensive in the risks that they're finding, like World Check or World Compliance or, or Info4C, uh, that that are starting to aggregate critical or significant risks that you can identify. The other thing that's really interesting is the lack 
of web presence, the lack of open source intelligence is now a fabulous way to identify potential fraud and to identify potential issues in your supply chain uh, and in your third parties and in your uh, joint ventures. So if you're telling me we're going to build a uh, N95 facility or a melt-blown fabric facility in the United States, and you're going to be my partner in that, right? Uh, if I can't find uh, any existing information about you at least managing manufacturing facilities, right off the bat, I know I've got a problem, right? Um, because so much has moved to the digital realm. And so when I look at technology and what it does for us in terms of risk management, it makes it, um, uh, it makes it more comprehensive um, because of the uh, substantial volume of due diligence uh, sort of data sets now, it makes it more certain. And then lastly, because it's automated, it makes it actually possible, right? There's no way that most organizations could do diligence uh, 100 vendors, let alone 10,000 vendors uh, that are um, uh, currently, you know, working for most of the large companies in the world. So um, the advancement, it, it, it makes this due diligence possible. It's almost like a, you know, a serendipitous, serendipitous confluence of the need and the solution coming together, right? It's like bioavailability. It's really, it's really an interesting period of, of compliance evolution. Brendan, one of the themes I've heard you talk about over the years is, although you certainly have the ability to drill down very narrowly and very deeply, as you just did talking about due diligence, you really advocate a much more holistic approach. And it starts with your third parties are not simply your sales agents. They're your vendors in your supply chain, but they're a, a broad variety of others. They could be a joint venture partner. They could be a teaming partner. And indeed, the... Um, in the business world, businesses are only limited by their imaginations on how they can partner with other companies. How do you how do you uh, talk to either a business executive or even a compliance officer to understand that really anyone they are in business with is a potential risk and see that as what we might call a third party risk? Yeah, that that's a great question. So um, first of all, I'm seeing that the risk stewardship is growing um, within organizations. So CIO, CISO, um, the um, supply chain folks, procurement folks, the uh, chief compliance officer, the general counsel are all aggregating up and sharing views on how they see and understand risk, right? And so we're seeing a natural um, drawing together of these different segments into a risk committee or into one review of risk or into one holistic risk. So instead of, you know, you used to have these spreadsheets that you'd get at risk committees or at board meetings, and, and you'd have each business unit segmented, and you'd get sort of a compilation of the highest risks that each of those businesses um, was experiencing. And I think now what we're seeing is instead of that um, sort of very business focused lens and then highest place risks being 
uh, disaggregated, we're getting aggregated views of, hey, you know, we don't just have supply chain bottlenecks. We've got adversarial finance. We've got cyber hacking. We've got all of these coming together in these same hotspots. And so we need to collectively address them. And so the way that I've been briefing senior executives, CEOs, COs, CFOs, and doing that with the CCO on um, holistic risk assessment is to find those hotspots, to identify those hotspots in the organizations that are subject to multi-factor risk, right? And you know, you don't have to you don't have to follow every thread of risk management in order to do this. If you just look at the FCC coming out and saying there are five entities um, that are blacklisted in terms of national security threats, and if you look at you know cyber risks like the um, uh, hacks of uh, Outlook accounts that happened just a couple of weeks ago. And then you look at compliance risks, right? So you look at things like anti-bribery, anti-corruption, fraud risk. They all start to, in a Venn diagram, overlap in a few key segments of your organization a few key areas of uh, your supply chain. And they allow you to illustrate how today that's where those hotspots are, but then they could move here tomorrow, or they could move to another part of your uh, business, or they could be subject to growth or geographical expansion. And when you start to show how those hotspots of aggregated or concentrated risk Um, essentially congeal and then can move from piece to piece within your organization. And if you don't get ahead of them, you can be like most companies where, you know, you were subject to substantial risk in COVID. Um, uh, If you don't get ahead of them, you're going to be at a loss. That usually drives that, that top level organizational change. The CEO, the COO, the CFO, start to say the CCO is raising a view of our environment that mitigates our insurance premiums, right? Because we're subject to less loss. The CCO is starting to raise risks that start to mitigate our tech spend uh, and start to make sure that we're not the poster child for you know poor credential management. The CCO is starting to flag up issues related to um, new geographical environments and how those regulations could impede our ability to deliver to our customers. And that CCO engagement of holistic risk is um, is something that starts to add real value to the rest of the business. And it's not just in one jurisdiction, Tom. I mean, if you look at uh, Japan's reforms. If you look at the UK reform, if you look at the integrated defense review that the UK is about to implement um, to prioritize national security concerns um, uh, in the review of potential M&A uh, of UK companies by um, poten- potential competitor nations, 
those are all bellwether points for where we're going, which is that you can't look at these things in a vacuum. You have to draw them together, determine where hotspots are, and then effectively mitigate them in order to stay ahead of both commercial disruption and regulatory enforcement. Brendan, uh, five years ago or so in the prior election, not the most recent, I think people understood that uh, data uh, protection uh, was a risk at the national security level. And then I think companies that contracted directly with the government began to understand the their risk and the government's response to that. Um, once again, you guys have been talking about the national security risks uh, for quite some time. And uh, presently, uh, we had SolarWinds hack last fall announced. And the thing that struck me is obviously uh, incredible damage to the U.S. government, but also incredible damage to U.S. corporations. And the message that you as a public corporation, um, if you were hacked, that could be a national security concern, I think finally caught the public, public consciousness. Does that message that you and Carrie and others have been talking about for some time, is it finally beginning to resonate? It, it is. It is. Um, it, uh, and it resonates in, in lots of different areas. Um, it doesn't just resonate in third-party risk management and in supply chain, supply chain risk management. I've seen it start to be a critical differentiator in um, due diligence of acquisitions. Um, so I've seen people starting to recognize supply chain risk and cyber risk management, and then what uh, kind of practices and policies you have to mitigate um, some of the adversarial risks in investment discussions. Uh, I think it is starting to impact um, uh, some of the um, joint venture and uh, downstream um, collaboration conversations that you see in in certain supply chain uh, efforts. So it's starting to resonate that these um, risks within companies um, are issues of hygiene, right? So if I don't have a solid cyber program, there is a potential that I've got poor practices elsewhere. Uh, if I have a really, uh, if I've had issues with third parties in ABAC risk, right, there's, there's a high probability that I've not managed some of the other areas of my supply chain and I don't have good transparency into it, right? And so the, it's kind of like um, it, the indicia of risk is in and of itself important to understanding the propensity for other failings in your vendor ecosystem. But, um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is the solar winds attack. And it doesn't hurt that the solar winds attack was by method and name a supply chain attack. Solar winds was not hacked. And the methodology of the hack proves it. Solar winds wasn't hacked to. Uh, penetrate the solar winds network. Solar winds was hacked to penetrate wherever the Orion software platform was going. Right, the the hack didn't form as malware into solar winds network. The hack uh, was created to mimic the software uh, framework 
of their Orion software that was then being deployed on to their customers, right? And so to understand the risk that your third parties could have to your ecosystem, to your compliance, to your capability, you don't have to look any further than that hack to understand that people understand that your vendor ecosystem is only as strong as your weakest link. And that um, the overlap between then that uh, that vendor risk management issue and potential national security down the line um, is, is intrinsic. If you've got any federal government customer or you have any critical infrastructure customer, if you're selling to Duke Energy, guess what? You're on the electrical grid, Tom, right? This isn't, this isn't confined to just the, you know, 160,000 companies in the defense industrial base or the 300,000 companies that support them or, uh, you know, just federal government contractors. Like if you look at DHS's mission, right, if you look at the integrated defense review that uh, BEIS is doing in the UK, right, they're looking at critical infrastructure. It's 5G telecommunications ramp up. And if you wish to be a provider, software provider, a uh, hardware provider, a, um, uh, a services provider into those environments, you need to understand that your compliance hygiene matters. And it matters to the extent that you are actually in that regulated market now. And I think that's the shift in change in thinking is national security, Tom, this is what we learned in COVID. Um, the uh, inability to get N95 masks to healthcare uh, uh, frontline workers impacted civilian essential programs and, and impacted defense programs, right? If I can't get people to clean up defense facilities, right, I can't actually bring people into those defense facilities. And so national security and economic prosperity are inherently linked. And I think the president's EO on America's supply chains recognizes that and puts that out as a key component of U.S. policy. And then if you look at the if you look at the Japanese response or the G7 plus three, the new sort of tech 10 or democracy 10, as they're called, right? It's G7 plus, I think, Korea, Australia and India, right? So if you look at that tech 10, that democracy 10, they all responded to that EO saying, we're going to do the same thing. So guess what? Every industry, every country in that list now thinks national security and economic prosperity are linked. And so if you're a company delivering in one of those sectors, which you almost inevitably are, then so should you. One of the other themes I've heard you articulate over the years is that uh, third-party risk management, supply chain risk management, and business venture risk management is not simply saying no. It's not simply stopping doing business. It's not simply responding to a law. It's actually a business differentiator and uh, can add to greater profitability for your company. I was wondering if you could give a few thoughts around why a robust uh, risk management program in this area and actually help a company make money? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we always used to go back to um, when we talk about 
um, you know, the the support that compliance provides to a, a solid economic foundation is that you avoid uh, the risk, right? So um, in the foreign exchange investigations, the, disgor the disgorgement uh, that was suffered wiped out the last five years profits for those, uh, for a lot of those banks, right? So, you know, that's one argument, but I think that's actually the lesser of the arguments, to be honest. I think that um, what's come to the fore is that one, good practice, uh, uh, best practices in compliance often lead you to, to finding that 99 or 95% of your population can kind of be straight through processing, right? If you've set up good compliance practices, you've got hallmarks of good, hallmarks of bad, and you've got systems that comprehensively help you to evaluate the data points that determine one way or the other, you have the ability to um, largely straight through process vendors uh, uh, on uh, a systematized and programmatic basis, which is going to reduce your effort in vendor assessment substantially, right? But the second thing, and I think that this is really important, is that a secure supply chain, a tr transparent supply chain, a, a solid joint venture based upon solid due diligence has a level of sustainability and economic agility that is not possible or is less likely to be true if you um, have, if, if you only take an opaque view to your joint ventures, you only look at commercial engagement, or you only look at capability engagement, it's going to give you a very, very narrow view of sustainability. And I, you know, I hate to harken back to this because people are tired of talking about COVID, but COVID was a good example of where you might have integrations of technology. Uh, you might have um, viable supply chains that help you in the good times. But many of us experienced and saw what it was like to have um, uh, supply chains that weren't transparent. And, you know, we couldn't get enough computers or we couldn't get enough um, ventilators or we couldn't get enough, um, you know, certain types of underlying supplies. Um, or even just at the beginning of COVID, what it was like to not have enough hand sanitizer. and. Um, those constraints are largely built off of a lack of transparency in our current commercial dealings. If we had integrated compliance uh, into those deals more effectively and taken a holistic view of risk, we could have seen these things coming and known to mitigate them, right? And that drives true economic differentiation. The other thing that I would say, Tom, is that um, there's going to be a huge, there's going to be an amazing growth in certain areas, right? So uh, you look at um, the growth in high capacity batteries, you look at the growth in electric vehicles, you look at the growth in 5G, you look at the growth in alternative energy, and all of those areas are dependent upon 
um, strong supply chains, and they're all dependent upon materials that today, and, and um, essentially uh, services that today are not secure. They're, they're bottlenecked. So um, if you want to get in on the innovative growth that is going to happen in these sectors, it means showing good compliance standards. Differentiating means showing good compliance standards. If you can show transparency to the vendors you're working with, if you can show good risk identification practices, if you can then show good mitigation practices, oh yeah, here, here are the five providers that I use for us. Here's all the bottlenecks that they have downstream. And you know what? Here's the market intelligence that I have on who I can contract with if I end up in a bad place. Or here's the joint venture that we've done. Here are the, the economic principles we put in place to mitigate the risk of you know, potential um, disasters or, or uh, potential compliance issues or whatever it might be. Um, then you are set to differentiate and grow with these innovative areas of uh, the market that are about to explode. And so I think that there's, you know, there are three things. There's avoid the risk that wipes out the profit. I think there's the um, uh, ability uh, to um, create strong mitigation practices that in times of crisis will help you to remain one of the economically prosperous companies. And then three, I think that there are areas of growth in the market that just by their very nature are going to demand stronger compliance, stronger ESG practices. Brendan, uh, I think I'm going to end on that because that was great. So, and I, now sure. I'll say, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, uh, but I was wondering if uh, anyone wanted to find out more information on Exeter, where can they go? Um, so the best place is Exeter.com. Uh, you've got access to all of our experts, um, all of our solutions, uh, and uh, you can always reach out to us. So thank you so much. And I would add, it's a great resource. They have a ton of information and it's all a large part of it's available. Uh, so check it out. Brandon, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to visit with me and I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. Thank you. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.